Well, I want to welcome all of you, whether you're uh, here in person or watching on a video screen or watching online. A special shout out to all my brothers and sisters at South Lake Campus and all my brothers and sisters at North Richmond Hills Campus because this weekend it's my privilege to preach uh, live at the West Fort Worth Campus and I'm honored to get to do this. And I've heard from so many people, especially watching and listening online, that uh, this study of the book of Revelation has created quite a buzz. And I understand that because it's all my life been a book that I wanted to know more about, but was almost afraid to begin to try to study because it is a very unique uh, piece of the Word of God. And I want you to know that we're about to get into some really crazy stuff now. The first five chapters have been strange, but put on your seatbelts because we're about to really go for a ride. And my task these next few weeks is going to be very, very difficult as we try to cover large sections of material that if I was teaching a Bible class, I would take about two hours to teach, but I only have about 30 minutes to try to preach. So let me help you understand my dilemma with this story I came across. It's the story of a man and a woman who had diaries. Now this on a particular day was the woman's entry in her diary. Tonight, I thought my husband was acting weird. We'd made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late. But he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. And finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. Same day, husband's diary. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure it out. Now, we're about to enter a part of the book of Revelation where we're going to cover a large amount of material every week. It's a very challenging section as the contents of God's scroll begins to be revealed. And it's really going to help me and you if you will read ahead the chapters I've asked you to read as we prepare. And as we go into this material, I want you to remember several things. Number one, good Bible-believing people interpret the material we're about to begin to study differently. Now, obviously, I believe what I believe to be right, or I wouldn't believe it. But I don't think I'm always right. 
I'm going to share with you my convictions, but nobody's interpretation of Revelation is unchallengeable. So here's the point, that we not get so detoured by the details that we miss the main point. And the main point is not complicated. That allegiance to Jesus is worth it. And that's critical to remember because remember that John has given us a view of what the greater reality so that we can interpret the reality we're dealing with because down here it's hard. We need to look above so we can interpret what's going on around. And so we've had two awesome chapters of bow down. Now, get ready for about 13 chapters of beat down. Because John is going to begin to describe a series of judgments on the earth. Represented by seven seals and then followed by seven trumpets and then seven bowls. Now here's the big question. And interpreters differ. Should we read this material cyclically or chronologically? Because Western mindset that we have likes our literature to flow in a sequential manner. We like for this to follow this to follow this on the time continuum. But the Eastern mindset emphasized theology over chronology. They weren't so hung up on what followed when as much as they were the big point they were making. And so especially Apocalyptic writers often employed a literary device called recapitulation. And all that means is I'm going to tell the story again from a different point of view so that you can see it a different way. It's like when you watch a football game and they show a replay and they give you this angle. They show the same play from a different angle on the replay so that you can get a different perspective. Now, The Bible does this a lot. In fact, that's how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, you get the seven days of creation. What's Genesis chapter 2? I'm going to retell Genesis 1 from a different angle. I'm going to focus on day 6 and the man and the woman. In the book of Daniel, the most apocalyptic book in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue. And this statue, we find out, represents four kingdoms that are about to come onto the earth. And they're precious metals and silvers. Because that's how men will look at these kingdoms as valuable and precious and mighty. And that's Daniel 2. Now, in Daniel 7, the prophet's going to have a dream. About four kingdoms that are coming into the world. But they're not precious metals in Daniel 7. They're vicious evil beasts that come out of the evil sea and spread violence and bloodshed. Because that's how those same exact kingdoms in Daniel 2 look to God. Recapitulation. At some level, this is what the Gospels are. The four Gospels are all given us the account of the life of Jesus, but every author has a different angle He reveals something more unique about Jesus. And that's why the gospel authors aren't so keen as we are in putting everything in the exact same order. 
So you may get a story in one gospel that's in this place, and you may get that same story in a different gospel in a different place. Because in the Eastern mind, the time is not as important as the theme. Now, if you read Revelation sequentially, and this has to come after this, and this has to come after this, you're going to come with a very unique perspective. But I think you're going to have problems. I don't think it was meant to be read that way. For example, we'll get over later to the bowl judgments in chapter 16. The third bowl, all the rivers and waters in the world are going to turn to blood. But a little bit later, the sixth bowl is going to be poured out and the water in the Euphrates River is going to dry up. Now, wait a second. What's there doing water in the river if in bowl three it was all turned to blood? You see, John would say, stop bogging on the details. And get the main point here. And so we're going to look at these three judgments. And we're going to see that each one of them is going to give us a little bit different perspective of how God is saying the world is going to end. Now, the second and third judgments, the trumpets and the bowls, are going to look a whole lot like the plagues. But not the seals. Why? Who did the plagues judge? The plagues judged the Egyptians, not the Israelites. They didn't experience the plagues. The trumpets and the bowls are going to show us from the perspective of the unbeliever what God is doing to judge the world. But the seals are going to show us from the perspective of the believer. As we see history moving toward the end, how is the church going to be affected? And that's what we're going to cover in this lesson, and we're going to have to cover a lot. But if what I'm saying is right, and if we read Revelation this way, this is important, it means we are in the last days now. That chapter 6 is telling us just as much about the last days as chapter 16. See, I believe that the New Testament teaches that the last days were inaugurated by the coming of Jesus and they will be consummated by the second coming of Jesus. That we are now living in the last days. For example, the Hebrew writer starts his book this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Acts 2 verse 17. In the last days, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. The coming of Jesus, the ushering in of the age of the Holy Spirit, is God's final move before eternity. In other words, nothing has to happen that hasn't happened yet before Jesus can come back. We are to live right now with the expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment because we are living in the last 
days. And here's what you're going to find out. The last days are not going to be the best days. They were tough on the churches in Asia that John wrote to. And the scroll says they're not going to get better. Revelation is preparing us to live in the last days. And the last days are hard. But we can survive and we can even thrive if we stand on the premises. So, let's get started. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and there before me was a white horse and his rider held a bow and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. And when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other, and to him was given a large sword. And when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And there was given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so as these seals begin to get open, it looks like all hell is breaking loose. Now actually, these four horsemen represent the world as it is in rebellion to God's authority and moral order. In other words, the four horsemen represent what kind of world human beings create when we live apart from God. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that God has turned us over to our sin. That when we think about the wrath of God, it's not God up there throwing down thunderbolts. But God is letting us experience the consequences of a world Where we have deified man and made ourselves our own gods. God created us for a culture of life. Where we live in harmony with God, harmony with each other, harmony with creation. But we deified ourselves. And we've created a culture of death. And what the first four seals are basically saying is war and strife have become the human Condition, conquest, bloodshed, famine, disease, plague, death. This is the world we've created by our lust for empires. And who suffers the most? The poor. Did you notice that little line? A day's wages for some wheat? Just enough to feed one person, not a family? But don't touch the oil and the wine. Who can afford oil and wine? The rich people can. Isn't it true that in human history, in our constant warring, the poor have suffered 
the most. This is the world without God. Now, when John's readers read those verses, they knew exactly who he was talking about. Rome has been riding these four horses. But think about it. When have these four horses not ridden? When has the world not been a place of strife and enmity and conquest and disease and plague and discrimination and war? You see, the consequences of living in a world given to violence and greed are indiscriminate. It affects believers and non-believers alike. But human government's misuse of power doesn't frustrate God's government. Did you notice it was the Lamb that opened every seal? And it says every time they were given authority. They were given the power. In other words, what John is saying, even though this world is awful because of man's lust for power, God's still in control. In fact, it's not all hell breaking loose. It's God holding all hell back. Every single rider is under the throne. And God is putting parameters around what every rider can do. See, here's what I want you to write down. Here's the big point. History belongs to God. I don't think these seals are describing what will take place. I think they're describing what always takes place. And God's people get caught in the crossfire. And for 20 centuries, Christians have been persecuted and arrested and murdered in a world where greed and violence and lust rule. But God is still over it all. Now, we got to say something here. One thing this text is telling us, when people shake their fist at God and say, why do you allow all the suffering in the world, is we got to hear God say, you're doing most of the cause. The suffering in the world isn't my desire. The suffering in the world isn't my cause. It is the result of your rebellion and your sin. But we've got to assert this. That the reason God doesn't do away with all this evil is not because he can't. Everything is underthrown. But that creates a problem if you're under the altar. Look at the next seal with me, verse 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and their sisters were killed just as they had been. Now, every one of us knows the frustration of praying prayers that don't seem to be answered. 
I read an article recently of a father who said his wife was out of town, so it was his job to feed his four-year-old and three-year-old daughter. And he was pretty new at it, so he put them at the table, and he was doing his best to get things ready, and he told them to go ahead and start eating, but first to say their prayers. So they bowed their little heads, they folded their hands, and they started to pray. After about a minute, the four-year-old lifted up her head, opened her eyes, and started to eat. But the three-year-old just kept praying. I mean, she prayed for like another two minutes. And when she finally finished, she opened up her eyes, and with an indignant voice, she said, Hey, these peas are still here. We understand that. We have all prayed for God to take something away. Maybe it was cancer. Maybe it was financial distress. And certainly it was evil. God, take away the people who are so wicked. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. This is the most common prayer in the Bible. How long, Lord? It's the way that we give vent to our frustration at the lack of justice and deliverance in the world. And these saints that John sees in the fifth seal, they're not just praying long distance. It's not that they saw on CNN or on the internet that they're suffering in the world. They were first-hand victims of evil. They were murdered by the Babylons of the world because they named Jesus. And so they asked God to do something about it. And the thing is, God is just as upset about it as they are. But his answer is, take a robe, be patient. More of you must die first. That's the answer. Because sometimes we forget that God wants to redeem the persecutor as much as the persecuted. He wants to save the tyrant as much as the tyrannized. And so this is hard for us to hear. Maybe not so much for us who live where we live, but even this week, I got to visit and hear about a couple of Christians in Turkey who are listening to these sermons, who live in the very place where these seven churches were, where you can get into big trouble for being a Christian. And this is not easy to hear, because here's basically what God is saying. If I ended everything now, some people I want to save wouldn't get saved. I am willing... For more of my righteous ones to die. So that more of the unrighteous have time to repent. You see, judgment belongs to God. We don't dictate to God how to run the world. God says, I know when how long is enough. And someday the number of the martyrs is going to be completed. I don't know that number. God says I know it. And someday the sixth seal is going to be broken. And it's going to be judgment 
day. Verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You see, God, because He's gracious, delays judgment. But God, because He's holy, cannot forever dismiss evil. God is going to judge. Now, this is one reason why the Bible says vengeance is not your job. It's God's job. You let God handle it because judgment belongs to God. But God is going to open that sixth seal someday. Now, I... uh, Believe God's talking here about the end of the world. You don't have to wait all the way to the end of Revelation. In that language about the sun and the moon, if you read your prophets, you know that whenever they were going to announce the end of a nation like Babylon or Assyria, they'd use this kind of language. But here, I don't think they're talking about the end of a nation like Rome. I think they're talking about the end of the world. And here's one reason. You know that in Revelation, the number 7 and the number 12 stand for completion. Did you notice there were seven geological movements? Earthquake, sun, moon, stars, sky, islands, mountains. We wouldn't catch this, but John's readers would. How many people called out for help? Kings, princes, generals, mighty, rich, slave, free. What's he saying? He's saying that when that sixth seal is open... Everybody's going to be affected and everything is going to come undone. And when the great day of the wrath of the Lamb comes, who can stand? And then, and I'm sorry I'm talking so fast, but listen, we've got a long way to go. In the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bows, we always get six. And before number seven... There's an interlude. It's almost like John says, now changing channels. And he gives us a totally new scene. And that scene is always the big point of what those judgments are about. So we've had six seals. And now he says, change a channel. And what was the last question? When the great day of the wrath of the Lamb comes, who can stand? Now remember, the seal judgments focus on the church in the last days. So let's read verse 3 of chapter 7. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So John suddenly sees... This 
144,000, 12,000 from 12 tribes. You think, well, he's talking about the nation of Israel, but not exactly. Look at those numbers. We don't have time to read them. He throws in Joseph. He takes out Ephraim. He totally takes out the tribe of Dan. He throws in Levi, which never got a plot of land in the Old Testament. They were the priests. They, they weren't allotted land. But now remember, all through Revelation, he's made us a kingdom of priests. We are all Levi in Jesus' movement. We don't need anyone anymore to be our mediators. Here's what is happening. Nowhere in Revelation does John separate, does Jesus separate the Jews and the Gentiles. John is seeing the faithful church on earth. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church fulfills Israel. Everything God was doing in Israel is fulfilled in the movement Jesus has created. And we're now all Levites. We're now all sons of Abraham. And again, that number 144,000, that's confusing to us. It wouldn't have been to them. Remember, what's the number of completion? 12? 12 times 12 times 1,000, which in the Bible means totality. Remember, the the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. What's that mean? It means all of them do. Completion times completion times totality. What's that number stand for? Here's what it means. That God is not going to lose a single saint when all of evil plays itself out. Yes, some Christians are going to die. They're not going to be physically protected, but they're going to be sealed Against all the unsealed evil in the earth. And they are going to be saved. Because God knows who they are. 2 Timothy 2.19. God's strong foundation continues to stand. And these words are written on the seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. In other words. When, when the last days end. And everything goes to chaos. God is not going to lose one single faithful follower of Jesus. That complete number he knows perfectly. To God, it is an exact number. But to us, it's innumerable. And so, John says, next scene. Same answering the same question, next scene. Verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, this saved group of people is really innumerable. And they're from every nation, not just one. And this is really important. What did it say they were doing? Standing. What was the big question at the end of chapter 6 when all hell is breaking loose and the world is ending? Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And what's the answer in chapter 7? Everybody who is wearing the robe given by the Lamb is going to stand. They may not have escaped the first death. 
but they escaped the second, which Jesus says is the only one that really matters. Because they gave their allegiance to the right kingdom. See, here's the big takeaway here. What they sing, salvation belongs to God. Well, I hope you remember that. That this Bible does not teach that there are a number of salvation options to choose from. I know that's not politically correct. I know you're supposed to say, hey, there's a whole lot of ways to, do, to God. There's just a whole lot of religions out there. They're all basically saying the same thing. That is not what they sing in heaven. You don't get to decide how you're going to come to God. Because salvation doesn't belong to you. Salvation belongs to God. You don't earn it. You have no merit. It is a gift that he gives. And who does he give it to? He gives it to all who have bowed before the great I Lamb. At the end of this sermon, we're going to sing a song. And during that song, a prayer team's going to be down at the front. And I'm just saying right now. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never confessed him, if you've never surrendered to him, if you've never been baptized into his death and his resurrection, when we sing that song, I would not walk down here if I was you. I would run down here. I would run down here and say, don't let me leave tonight or today until I am right with the Lamb. Because salvation belongs to God. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, now watch. These are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those that can stand. When everything is over and everything is ended and we're all before the throne, who's going to stand? Those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. I think we've all had to come through the great tribulation. I don't think that phrase means something way out in the future. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have tribulation. In chapter 1, John says, I'm your companion in the tribulation. He told the church of Smyrna, you're about to face great tribulation. All over the world right now, Christians are facing great tribulation. But we can come through it standing See, whether you agree with my interpretation or not I think we all agree on this life is hard now if the book of Job taught me anything it taught me I'm not qualified to tell God how to run the world but It seems like, God, it would help a lot if you would just tell me more. Because we don't like mystery. And so what we do, we create systems. We call them systematic theologies. And we come up with ways to speak for God to explain everything. And these systems give us order until one of the horsemen comes by. And our mate gets cancer. Our kid 
gets hit by a car. We lose our job. The nation goes to war. The economy goes in the ditch. And all of a sudden, that system crumbles and faith buckles. And let me speak to that. You need to know in your Bible, God doesn't say, I'm going to explain evil. He said, I'm going to surround it. And when the time comes, I'm going to stop it. And you need to remember, God is not a system. God is a person. And God has said, I'll be with you through it. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was walking in the English countryside with a friend. They saw on top of a barn there was this weather vane said, God is love. And Spurgeon said, I don't like that. Because the wind is always changing, but God's love is constant. And his friend said, Charles, you misunderstand. It's saying it doesn't matter which way the wind's blowing. God is still love. We need to remember that. And we need to remember that one day God will unseat the horseman. He will say, you've ridden long enough. And so let's finish looking at verse 15 through 17. Therefore, talking about those who are standing there before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne. Notice this, the Lamb will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And folks, this ought to get you. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It will be worth it. What's the big takeaway? Those who stand for Christ will stand forever. And so you read about these people, our forefathers in the faith, and they were arrested, and their possessions were stolen, and they were beaten, and they were killed. And they just had a joy about them. They had a resolute, bold defiance about them. They would even sing in prison. They knew deep in their soul, if we stand for Christ, we're going to stand forever. And it's worth it. And we need to be like them. We need to pray for courage. We need to pray for justice. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters right now around the world who are being persecuted. And we need to worship. We need to sing to the Lamb. We need to say that salvation belongs to God. Even when it hurts, we need to worship. And in the last days, we need to keep our eyes on the ancient of days. And the one kingdom that will always exist. Martin Luther King preached this sermon on April 3rd, 1968 in Memphis. 
He said, I don't know what will happen to me now. We got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, Martin Luther King was assassinated. If you're going to preach one last sermon, you want to preach that one. We've seen the promised land. We've seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And if you have had that revelation, you can stand. I'd like you to stand with me on every campus. I'd like prayer teams to take their place. I told you we're going to sing a song, but first I'm going to pray. And so now, God, I'm asking you to help us respond to your word in revelation the way you meant for us to respond with courage, with holy defiance, with greater faith, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. I'm praying right now, God, for people who are hurting. They're battling disease and financial distress and rebellion in the home, and they're hurting. And I'm hoping, God, they're going to stand on the rock of Jesus. I'm praying for people right now who are being persecuted, who are being mocked for their faith. They're going to stand with the gospel of Jesus. I'm praying for people right now listening to me who've never confessed him, never surrendered to him, never been baptized into him. They will stand in Jesus because salvation belongs to you, oh God. Right now, move your people. Do your work in our hearts. Help us to see so we can stand. In Jesus' name, amen.